This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. In a recent statement, Mark Leberton and Richard Mao, President and President Emeritus of Fuller Theological Seminary, noted an increase in racist and Islamophobic rhetoric by some evangelicals in recent months. Within the American context, Islam continues to garner a lion's share of the public's attention, Given this religious backdrop, American evangelicals have tended to respond to Islam in a myriad of ways. On one hand, some evangelicals have responded through expressions of fear and condemnation, a response that views Islam as violent and a threat to Western values. Yet another reaction is confusion and paralysis. This is more difficult to categorize, but its manifestations are easily recognizable. Subsequently, many evangelicals have opted for a posture of silence. As such, the most urgent and pressing questions among evangelicals remain dormant, relegated to conversations over dinner with friends or following a board meeting with particular constituencies. So Fuller Theological Seminary has been actively engaged in Christian-Muslim dialogue for years, seeking to demonstrate openness, understanding, and above all love. Since 2010, the Evangelical Interfaith Dialogue Journal has played a key role in connecting Fuller Seminary to interfaith work of evangelicals around the world. With funding from the Henry Luce Foundation, Fuller Seminary co-created with Calvin Theological Seminary and the Lausanne Movement, an event that was recently held here in Grand Rapids. A consultation of evangelical leaders was held at Calvin, this intra-evangelical conversation asked how respective hopes, fears, and questions of Christians can be addressed as they strive to move beyond paralysis and demonization in engagement with Muslims. Emphasis was placed on identifying actionable theological resources to root interfaith engagement deeply within approaches to Christian discipleship across denominational lines. The resources from the consultation at Calvin will be published in a special edition of the Evangelical Interfaith Dialogue Journal, which will focus on Islamophobia in America and will include contributing authors from Christian and Muslim communities. From that event at Calvin Seminary, we have as our guest today John Moorhead. He is the co-editor and contributing author for Encountering New Religious Movements, a holistic evangelical approach, and the editor of Beyond the Burning Times, a pagan and Christian in dialogue. He's been involved for many years in multi-faith relationships and conversations in the context of Islam, Mormonism, paganism, and atheism. He has been the team leader for the Multi-Faith Matters Collaborative Inquiry Team, His ongoing research in multi-faith engagement involves bringing moral psychology, particularly concerns for purity, into conversation with a theology of love, 
of his non-Christian colleagues and exploring the conceptual metaphors often used by evangelicals in relation to other religions. So we welcome to Common Threads, John Moorhead. Hello, John. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you for the opportunity. Certainly. Uh, Before we get into the event that you participated in at Calvin, uh, uh, let, let's get into your uh, your background. I've been aware of your work uh, uh, through Facebook, actually, for the last couple of years. And and here's here's what I want you to, to address initially. In the interfaith movement over the last few decades, we tend to have a stereotype of who's involved. And normally when we think of Christian involvement in interfaith dialogue, participation, etc., we tend to think of the more mainline or liberal denominations. It's, it's not big news when Methodists and uh, uh, Congregationalists and Catholics involve themselves in interfaith dialogue. A lot of people aren't aware of evangelicals in interfaith dialogue. Uh, can you tell me, were you at the genesis of this movement, and and did you run into any obstacles uh, when attempting to enter this arena? Yeah, I think I've been involved in uh, this multi-faith kind of context for a number of years, but you're you're quite correct that evangelicals tend to view interfaith relationships, organizations, events as suspect. Um, for them, it smacks of the idea that all religions are teaching the same thing, or if not, that the differences don't matter. And because evangelicals emphasize this purity, concerns for the boundaries, their understanding of religious truth, there's a tendency to shy away from those things that they might think might contaminate or, or corrupt them as individuals or the religious community that they come from. So you don't find a whole lot of evangelicals involved in the more traditional interfaith movement, but some of us have been working for years now to pioneer kind of an evangelical alternative called multi-faith engagement or religious diplomacy. And that's a little different in that it, it recognizes that there are religious differences. Those are important. Sometimes maybe even the differences are more important than the commonalities. But at the same time, we need to be able to hold those differences in a peaceful tension, develop relationships, work through those differences, and work together for the common good of our society across religious lines. And at the same time, in a multi-faith engagement model, unlike interfaith, there's an openness when there's an opportunity and when it's respectful and welcomed by your conversation partner to engage in forms of sharing your particular faith and inviting the other to consider that. So, there are some differences in the multi-faith engagement approach, even though many times it overlaps with an interfaith model. I would say so. I mean, the, what you're describing in multi-faith engagement, uh, certainly uh, the organization I represent, Interfaith Dialogue Association, and our parent organization, the Kaufman Interfaith Institute, I, I think we're completely uh, uh, on on board the same plane. Uh, but But... That's, to continue. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, we we refer to it as thick dialogue, mm. uh, as opposed to thin dialogue. And people 
should not be afraid to say what they honestly believe. And I do understand what you're saying. On this very program, uh, several years ago, I had a guest who was uh, uh, the head of an interfaith organization in New York. And we were talking about this very subject, the idea that people from the more conservative side of the Christian spectrum tend not to involve themselves in interfaith or multi-faith arenas. And I said, I asked her the question uh, that, uh, do you have any problem with someone coming into one of your events and uh, stating that you know, Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. All others are lost. And she paused for a second, and she said, well, I hope he would say, Jesus Christ is the only way for me. And I just thought to myself, that's that's watering down your message. You can't say that. You, I mean, you, a, a person who is an evangelical the way you are an evangelical. I don't want to speak for all evangelicals. I don't even want to speak for you, but I would I would uh, I would assume that you couldn't say that honestly in any sort of dialogue arena, correct? That's correct. Yeah, that that's what evangelicals call the scandal of particularity. This idea that we believe that God has done something done something unique and special in and through Jesus Christ that hasn't been done in other religions. And therefore, we have exclusive religious truth claims that we present to others and try to get them to embrace. But I would uh, argue, and I think Stephen Prothero, uh, in his book, uh, God is Not One, has called this idea that, oh, you know, the differences don't matter. They're basically all teaching the same thing or what have you. He calls it a naive uh, theological groupthink. And he calls it very dangerous because... It waters and glosses over the very real differences. And and most conservative people who have religious convictions are coming from that more exclusivist kind of perspective. So if we really want to address interreligious conflict, whether in the United States or around the world, it simply won't do to pursue those kinds of approaches that really appeal to more liberal understandings of interfaith. And we need, as you call, this thick dialogue or thick multi-faith conversational kind of approach. Right, right. There are people sometimes who approach me, they they say, well, what do you do when I talk about this, that, and I mention interfaith dialogue? And they'll say, well, you know, I've always really felt that uh, ultimately all religious are say- all religions are saying the same thing. And uh, I have to say, well, no, they're not, because I agree with uh, uh, Prothero that, that that's that's just not what we not what we preach and teach around these parts. <laughs> now, what's interesting then? You have had for several years um, conversations with Muslim colleagues, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so you have two religions with very clear exclusivist claims for the most part. Have you found that? Uh, the Muslims that you engage with, do they say that you have found have possibly found favor in God's eyes and don't have to worry about the next life? Yeah, it really depends upon the individual Muslim and where they're coming from. And this is one of the things we really need to to move beyond just reading about somebody else's religious tradition in a book produced by your own religious tradition. I'm not going to learn too much about what Muslims are and what their diversity is by reading books by Christian authors. I've gone out over the years 
and develop relationships with Muslims. And there's great diversity there. And some are more willing to say, uh, because we're a part of the Abrahamic tradition, I recognize, you know, valuable aspects of, of your religion, and maybe Allah will smile upon you in spite of your ignorance. And some who are, who are not quite so willing to be as gracious in that regard. So regardless of wherever the Muslim is coming through, uh, coming from, we need to develop those relationships and work through that in relationship to have an understanding as to where the other individual is coming from. This is true. I've often said that uh, you you can divide all of the subjects in religion into two camps, that which we can prove and that which we cannot. And people tend to spend so much time arguing about what we cannot prove, that we forget that there is enough material that we can prove, including the ability to live together and to iron out our differences for uh, for the matters that uh, of concern in this world. And I suspect that that's what you're doing. Exactly. You know, as an evangelical, I recognize that we put a whole lot of emphasis on the cognitive the doctrinal and the propositional aspects of our faith. We have certain foundational doctrines and teachings that we believe in that we want others to embrace as well. But the way human beings are configured is we're not primarily cognitive. We operate more through emotions in concert with our rationality. We have to see something modeled and embodied in a relationship in order to understand it and possibly find it appealing and maybe even persuasive. And so... Again, we need to move beyond this war of ideas and bring people into conversation and relationship with each other so we can understand our differences and work through them. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is John Moorhead, and we are talking about uh, Muslim-Christian relationships and multi-faith engagement. So... Uh, give us just um, a little taste of what you experienced at Calvin here in Grand Rapids uh, uh, over uh, three days of, of consultation. And, and for people who are not familiar with the term consultation in this context, because I wasn't until <laughs> a conversation I had with uh, John prior to this program, uh, I, I think we agreed that a consultation is kind of like a work a workshop? you still stand by that? Yeah, uh, basically, uh, there, we tend to think of conferences where you go, large gatherings, you have various keynote speakers who kind of present a message, and it's kind of a passive audience that hopefully takes something away from what's presented. This, this by contrast, is a consultation, and it's more of a, a collection of, of work groups where we do have folks presenting some ideas in shorter presentations, but then it goes back to table discussions and to larger group discussions. What What is our takeaway from this? How does it impact our local context? And then how do we take those ideas and continue and carry them forward beyond the initial consultation? And uh, are there, there any ideas that uh, came up? that you said, ah, this is something I need to institute in my work, in my life? 
Well, the, the consultation was a, a wonderful opportunity. Uh, it was 50 evangelicals from across the United States, North America. Uh, a few international evangelicals were invited as well. It was by invitation only. You had to have a history of some positive work in this area. And it was an opportunity to hear from others, to exchange ideas, to really engage in critical self-reflection about ourselves and, and the evangelical religious tradition, our subculture, and what it's doing, uh, our positives, but especially our failings in regards to interacting with uh, the Muslim community. And one of the, the main themes that has come across is the need to engage in hospitality. And many times evangelicals are not known for hospitality, but when we are, it's usually us conceiving of ourselves as the host. We extend it to others and invite them in, in this context, a Muslim into our homes, into our church, and we extend hospitality. That's important, but there's a power differential there that has been pointed out at the consultation. We also need to be willing as evangelicals to be respondents to the hospitality of Muslims. So a willingness to work through fears and misunderstanding and apprehension and follow the example of the Jesus we say we follow, who frequently accepted the invitations to table fellowship and hospitality from the socially marginalized of his cultural context. So hospitality has been a key theme. And do you, do you understand, or rather, does the group, did the group understand that there was this hand that had been reached out to them in hospitality. Essentially, what I'm asking is, has the Muslim community provided the offer of hospitality to all of you, or, or to some of you? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, one of the, the interesting things about this group is a lot of these folks have been so involved in this in different contexts that not only have they been extending hospitality, they have been the recipients of it themselves. And so it's just a, a reminder of that occasional power dynamic that needs to be addressed, that we need to put ourselves in the position of, of being gracious respondents and not just hosts. But then the greater challenge comes not so much from the participants of the consultation, but then going back to your local context with evangelicals wherever you are and helping them who have more of a kind of a boundary maintenance mentality where we have to protect the integrity of the church and our doctrine and so on from the perceived threat of the Muslim other and help them work through a process where they can be willing to be more involved in a hospitality approach. By the way, uh, have you met anyone from Grand Rapids uh, involved in this? I, I, I must, I'd be surprised if there wasn't someone Yes, that? I have met a couple of folks. Their names are uh, their names escape me off the top of my head, but there were some folks from Grand Rapids, and I think one or two even from uh, the Kaufman Institute. So, I, I, yeah, yeah. We certainly have had a had a local representation. Because um, what I was uh, going to mention is that uh, over the past year, uh, our parent organization, Kaufman Institute, which is housed here at Grand Valley State University, by the way, uh, uh, created a a program where local churches would adopt mosques. Did that at all come up in conversation? It, not in the ones that I've been involved in, but I, I like the idea. It sounds wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And so this was, uh, this is an opportunity, and it was uh, uh, specifically designed. They didn't uh, ask, uh, um, 
you know, Sikh Gudwaras or Jewish synagogues or Buddhist temples. This was strictly a, a Christian Muslim event. And I, and I do realize that sometimes events, you need to spread the net wide, and sometimes you just need a couple of hooks. You, you, sometimes it's good to, to, to keep it a little bit exclusive. And so this, was, uh, this is an opportunity, it's, it's ongoing, where uh, uh, the, the people in the church agree to visit the mosque, the people in the mosque agree to visit the church, and that there is also a strong social component, such as dinners. And at, at this point, so, so you would agree, I think, from what I'm hearing from you, please tell me if I'm wrong, that there is a time for true multi-faith or interfaith uh, dialogue cooperation and hospitality and then there is an opportunity for evangelization and that and that when one is involved in one activity you you can't conflate the two am, am I correct yes I think I would recognize the distinction sometimes they're related I, I think to be self-critical of my own tribe in a, in a or desire to help them pursue a better way. We put so much emphasis on the value and truth of our message and wanting to see others embrace the religious pathway that we have found so meaningful for us. We're so focused on evangelism that we run the danger many times of being perceived by others as if when we talk to them and share our faith, they have no value beyond the fact they are potential converts. And that's a, a gross form of personal reductionism. We need to view everybody as created in God's image, valuable, regardless of whether or not they choose to embrace the Christian message. And they're not just objects for evangelism, that interpersonal relationships with others includes many facets, and sharing our faith is an important part of that with them, but it's certainly not the only one. Has there ever, to, to your knowledge, ever been an event such as the one you attended at Calvin Seminary here in Grand Rapids uh, that involved any other religious movement? Has there ever been a movement like this concerning Jews or, uh, you know, fill in the blank? Uh, Not to my knowledge, um, but of course I'm not omniscient, so others uh, may be aware of something that I'm not. I do know that in some of the local work that was mentioned at the consultation, of folks who are engaging with local uh, mosques and religious leaders, that they have started to involve more rabbis and uh, and local uh, Jewish uh, components. So that element is starting to be added to the mix. Um, but I think we need to see much more of that. Sure, I, I'm I'm kind of surprised. Although you're you're agreeing that you there could have been. Uh, events like this, not necessarily here in Grand Rapids, but but somewhere else in the world, in the United States, where evangelicals may have gathered to talk about how to relate to Jews uh, or any other uh, uh, religion. Um, you, it's it's interesting in your bio, it's mentioned that you seem to have a penchant for particular communities. That uh, the conversations that you've had have uh, uh, been with people who are Muslim, Mormon, pagan, or atheist. That's, that's an interesting, <laughs> interesting group there. Uh, uh, tell us uh, a little bit. Also, you have this book here, um, Beyond Burning Times, A Pagan and Christian in Dialogue. Tell us a little bit about, about that experience. 
Yeah, it's my the different groups that I have been in relationship, conversations, dialogue with, really it's just a part of my own individual life journey as I have come across them, as certain religious groups have had more interest for me and curiosity, uh, I have sought them out and engaged them. So going back to my roots in Northern California, where I'm originally from, um, I was teaching at a Bible college, and I thought it was important for my students not only to hear a Christian talk about other religions, but to actually interact with adherents of other religious traditions. And this was close to 9-11. But I got permission from uh, the college at the time to invite some Muslim friends I developed a relationship with in, uh, in the greater Sacramento area to come. And so that kind of began my involvement with the Muslim community. Um, I relocated uh, years ago to Utah to pursue a graduate degree in intercultural studies at Salt Lake Theological Seminary, and that put me in a Mormon context. And I got involved in Mormon evangelical dialogue and conversations. And so I do that on a local level as well as participate in some public uh, dialogues to kind of model an approach. Um, in terms of paganism, when I was in seminary, I just was attracted to the idea of these nature-based spiritualities like Wicca and so on. And so I started researching and studying those. I developed relationships with uh, some pagans, and I thought, why not bring adherents of paganism and Christianity into conversation? And that resulted in the book Beyond the Burning Times, where an Australian Christian friend of mine, Philip Johnson, and an American uh, Wiccan, Gus de Zariga, came together and went back and forth on different issues and modeled a respectful engagement over their similarities and their differences. And then finally, atheism. Um, I've just I got a, a number of atheists uh, in the family, and uh, I just thought it would be interesting and helpful to understand where that's coming from. I think it's a significant group. According to the Pew survey, uh, evangelicals tend to have very low estimations of certain religious groups, and atheists are at the top of, of that, with uh, Muslims coming in a close second. So we need to understand the growing numbers of people who are choosing uh, to reject organized religion for uh, an atheistic or secular kind of worldview. So it's just my life journey running across people and developing those relationships and having those conversations. Wonderful. Well, John, we are at the end of our program today, but I wanted to thank you so very much for taking time out to speak with us. Uh, and well, thank you so much again for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Certainly. And and next week, by the way, I want to let everyone know, we're going to continue this conversation, not with uh, John Moorhead, but with Dr. Bob Roberts, Jr., a, a colleague of John, and we're going to get his perspective on this consultation at Calvin Seminary. You've been listening to WGVU's Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella. Please join us again next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.